Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We're glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. How are the two of you doing? You know, um, good. Good. Things are clicking along. RJ, how clicking are you? Along? <laughs> You shared so much, Sarah. I really feel like that was a deep sense of I mean, your I live in a constant state, state of, of having a paper planner where things don't get done and being overwhelmed and moving it to the next day. And, you know, most of the time I can't breathe. So, but I'm good. Things are great. I'm feeling, I'm, I'm feeling that. I'm feeling the never-ending to-do list yeah. a little bit besides just having three kids and helping my son, uh, you know, look over his college application essays and, um, you know, Wrestling a three-year-old, and I, I feel you. I feel yeah. you. Kind of the novelty of being back to school has worn off, and now we're really we're just in it. Here we are in mid-October. Now we're in it for a yeah. long yeah. time. Yeah, till Thanksgiving at least, and then Girl, for the Christmas. Till Thanksgiving so. till May. I get a breather, <laughs> and then I'm back at it. What are you talking about Thanksgiving? I well, got them my, with me at kids, Thanksgiving. I think my kids all get a week off at Thanksgiving. So well, that's they all do, nice. but that means we got to deal with them. Okay. Now I can sleep in a little bit. All right, Dave, how enough, are you? enough of that. Dave, how are you? <laughs> well, I'm great. I, I echo what you're saying. I think like uh, what people, the common image is that you get on like a roller coaster at the beginning of September and it kind of just doesn't end yeah. uh, for a long time. And maybe some, maybe you got a break at Christmas. If you're a person who works at a church, forget about it. Mm-hmm. Um, forget about but uh, this first piece we're going to talk about actually says that uh, we kind of prefer it this way, mm-hmm. that uh, this sort of nonstop unremitting activity is more comfortable than maybe downtime. This was written by Jonathan Malazic, who's a wonderful writer and used to be a college professor. And, you know, whenever you tell someone you're a professor or a teacher, they say, oh, you get summers off. How awesome is that? And uh, he just admits that that was actually much more difficult uh, for him, not because uh, he doesn't want to take a rest, but because he figured, felt that he didn't really, he couldn't. You know, uh, his state of mind was afflicted by what he calls acedia. Now, this is a term, an old term, a uh, old sort of... Um, Christian term, in fact, as the sin of a, the demon of acedia, in fact, which is known as the noonday demon. This was relatively fresh for me. I'd heard a little bit of talk about it. Acedia is from the Greek. It means a lack of care, uh, but manifests itself as an inner emptiness, a state of restlessness of not living in the present and seeing the future as overwhelming. And in the Middle Ages, it uh, was turned into the sin of sloth. Um, which is not the sin that we get to talk about very often. Uh, anyway, uh, Kathleen Norris, one of your uh, heroes, Sarah, yes. wrote about Acedia. She wrote a whole book about it. She uh, talks about episodes of in, uh, Acedia as episodes of inertia that spread into a bleak stretch of anxiousness and eventually spin out into indifference. Uh, she writes that we appear to be anything but slothful, yet that is exactly what we are as we do more and care less and feel pressured to do still more. And yet trying to to talk about a CD is like trying to define a negative or grab a shadow. And yet that's what Jonathan Malazich is trying to do in the plow quarterly in this essay, The Noonday Demon. He says that the, the Cedia, well, the chief place it drives him uh, to and still does is um, online. That Facebook, Twitter, these are the places we go. They, they are fueled by acedia. Acedia gets you to wish your life away in anticipation of something that will validate your worth as a person. If you feel lonely and anxious in your work now, then maybe you'll feel better when you get a new project next week or after you get a new job altogether. Of course, the deadlines arrive and pass or you begin the new job and you're just as anxious and alone. Soon you're thinking about the next project or you're on LinkedIn again. We've talked about this sort of in terms of the arrival fallacy. Uh, he goes on to say, Acedia is so uncomfortable because it's an in-between state, like the liminal space of the waiting room where there's nothing to do but kill time. Acedia's restless activity mimics the go-getter's constant motion, you know, kind of playing non-stop silly games on your phone, uh, yet it produces little, if anything, that has value. 
Yet the problem with ascidia isn't that it's unproductive. The problem, as Joseph Pieper, the Catholic uh, philosopher, saw it, is restless anxiety over our lives' worth. Pieper uh, maintains that the contrary of ascidia is not the spirit of work or earning one's living. It is man's happy and cheerful affirmation of his own being, his acquiescence in the world and in God. While Pieper doesn't offer a detailed strategy for winning that battle, he does point us back to the deeper problem, which is the inability to accept grace, whether in creation or election. In the world of capital T, total work, uh, man seems to mistrust everything that is effortless. He can only enjoy with a good conscience what he has acquired with toil and trouble. He refuses to have anything as a gift. Our moral and spiritual task today is to accept our being for the gift it is and acknowledge it in others, to recognize that no one's work determines their worth. Kind of a a little bit of an amorphous subject, but I I recognize the contours in my own life. Did this um, resonate with you? I loved his definition of it. Um, The thing that you read that um, it, acedia gets you to wish your life away in anticipation of uh something else that's going to validate your worth as a person something like that um and i totally identify with like the idea that like his like phone and social media is a place where like he turns to and you 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 know like i mean i like in a bodily way know the feeling he's talking about where you're like on your phone scrolling or you're like i'm just going to check my email one more time or um and i'm like in this right now which is probably why i don't want to talk about it um this summer and he talked about kind of getting away with his wife and what that looked like in this summer we got away and i was very like not on my phone i mean i texted you guys constantly but i was like not on social media and I brought that home and was really like, I'm not going to, like, I even started, you know, and this job is really new to me. And I started this year, like, I'm not going to be on my phone after 8 p.m. Um, I'm not going to check my phone until, sorry to my boss who listens to this podcast, uh, 9 a.m. Um, and that's all gone now. We're in October. I'm looking at my phone all the damn time. I wake up at 2 a.m. and I'm like, guess what's on my phone? I don't know. Let's check. Like, it's like constant. You know what I mean? Like, I'm in a constant state of never feeling like I'm going to get everything done, trying to get everything done, don't even know what the everything done is, and looking at my phone. And, like, all those peaceful vibes, they're gone. I mean, I'm just in it right now, and I don't really have an answer for that, except that I know that there are certain practices that will ground me back in that place. But it's real. I mean, the will is bound, friends. I mean, it is real hard to get myself to do those things. So, I don't know. Yeah, I felt pretty skewered by this, you know, have, having having the rotation. I mean, I'm not, as we've talked, we talked about last week, I'm not a big Twitter, Instagram person, Facebook to some degree, but I've got my rotation of sort of um, sports websites, car blogs, uh, you know, political sites, like just things to distract me from my everyday existence. Places where you um, can buy more polo shirts. <laughs> well, exactly. Although I, I really only own two and I have them in heavy rotation until they disintegrate. <laughs> Male modeling auditions. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's no mm-hmm. big deal. He's yeah. just, yeah. <laughs> Benjamin but, Button um, websites. Okay, keep going. As you, as you guys were talking, it suddenly struck me because I've been noticing this recently. I think this, with the Noonday Demon, I think this explains why a lot of men get depressed in August, because they cannot wait for the beginning of football season. Because football games are perfectly slotted into the the Noontime Demon. You know, it's like you wake up on a Saturday and you have to sort of um, justify your existence or figure out something to do or keep yourself busy. And you're just like, oh my gosh, when will noon be here? When Mm -hmm. will 12 o'clock be here and I can watch a football game and have some sort of sense of of belonging and purpose and meaning that will sort of eat up those three or four hours in the middle of the day? Mm -hmm. So I think there's really something... To that, um, Josh, course, this I, is a message just for you. Just, so you just for okay. or, and for you know, just for Sarah's jo- husband. Josh okay. and I are the only Mockingbird <laughs> listeners who watch football, <laughs> so it's just the two of us. Uh, but that's I've noted. I've absolutely noticed. Like I've been excited for the beginning of football season. I'm like, why is that? Like, oh yeah, because I don't have to figure out how to spend like an entire day where I have nothing to do because yeah. God God knows I do not want to go outside and kick the ball with my three year old for two mm-hmm. hours. Like that yeah. sounds awful. I need 
to sit down on the couch and have a little me time. And by me time, I mean time to forget everything and sort of the the, the aching sense of uh, unworthiness that never ends by taking in a little college football with, with teams that I don't even care about. Right. Like, you know, like could care less about. Um, could be a Cowboys-Giants game where, as I say, the only positive outcome is that the stadium explodes and everyone dies because I, because I hate <laughs> because I got my son saying that too. It's like, do I really want to watch the SEC? No, I don't. But I'd rather do that than contemplate my um, sort of meaningless existence. Yeah, or or rather, my 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 anxiety at uh, the need to um, perform something. Um, so yeah, there there was a lot. I felt very skewered, and I felt um, he was very honest, like sort of shamefully honest in a lot of ways. And I have friends who are yes. college professors. I want to forward this to them and be like, you know, because I'm jealous of them in the summer. They're hanging out at the pool. They're you know with their kids, and I'm like. So all summer, do you really just feel an aching sense of um, lack of achievement? Is that what you're actually feeling? <laughs> so here's what I kept wanting him to say in this piece, which is so funny and indicative of, like, human nature. I kept wanting him to say, but then I got cancer. Like, I kept wanting him to be like, you know what I mean? But Such like, a ray of sunshine, Sarah but then, I, but then I realized I needed to do different and be better. And at the end, he's like, this is always going to be with me. This demon will always be with me. And I was like, oh, okay, well, not well, what I was well, thinking. Well, that's true, but he also paints this uh, this little glimpse of grace that he receives, this yes. sort of moment of accepting. Because it, it, what he he the fact that he links this sort of spiritual restlessness that's combined with an emptiness and a boredom, uh, he links it to you know the refusal to accept grace. Mm-hmm. To accept that you are okay as you know in in in, in that, yeah. that our, our our core discomfort with who we are um, and R J he said it wasn't he did have friends who professors who seemed to enjoy it yeah but it was the thinking professions <laughs> oh, you know sure. or the creative yeah. ones yeah. You, you sort of so conflate your identity with what you do he's like I just didn't I was when I was a college professor I was a college professor mm-hmm. so acedia I, I don't know if it's going to catch on. On is a modern term, but Malazic writes so much about burnout, and um, there's one place where he says that we, we think of more work as the antidote to our acedia, when in fact the culture of total work actually makes the problems that we're trying to outrun in our acedia that much larger. Yeah. Like it's they create create them, and uh, he's constantly railing against what you know this sort of performanceism of the or the seculosity of careerism, however you want to put it. Um, anyway, interesting. I mean, I this struck me a little bit, Dave, as a like as a college chaplain, mm-hmm. just because the students are in such a similar pattern of like go go go, and their identity. You know, we both work at these like you know universities with great reputations and so that like they identify with where they are in such a deep way and it like feels like a not small miracle to me when five or six of them will show up for bible study and you get to say but you're this you're this other thing too you know what i mean like it's like i don't know it those are those are like miraculous moments for me when we can kind of all acknowledge that, myself included, but just like this actually isn't the whole story of who we are. Like the whole story of who we are is that um, we've been forgiven and that we're already enough because Jesus is enough. So, Yeah, the question is not how can I become worthy of this gift? It's what what can I do now that I am worthy of this right. gift? Right. How can, what, you know, that's a, that's a fundamentally different question. And maybe there are these, there, I think anyone who you talk to who's been... Uh, a spiritual person for any length of time will tell you there are moments where you do, you are kind of, you experience some sort of transcendence and gratitude and a uh, glimpse of, 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 of right now being God being with you and it being enough. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what he describes. And, you know, I think he's basically describing a glimpse of um, heaven. Yeah. You know, that's a... And I do think, I mean, this gets in a little bit to another uh article we're going to talk about it today. In my experience, when that happens, it's a surpri- it is a surprise. It's mm-hmm. not something you manufacture. You sort of, you sort of have a, a wake, like, oh, wow, I, I feel good right now. Like, I mm-hmm. feel at peace. I feel hopeful about the future. I feel like I don't need to accomplish anything to justify my existence. Um, it is, it's, uh, again, I mean, Sarah, you talk, maybe there are certain things we can do to bring us a little bit closer to that. Like, I've been reading the Psalms lately, and I guess say, David whines a lot about mm-hmm. sort of the difficulty of his life. I find it very comforting. I'm like, oh, look at him. 
David's um, all and King David, just to be yes, clear. We're talking very, about both of them. Yes, both, yeah. both yes, of those. Yeah. Um, but there is, there is some comfort in, in, in seeing these thousand-year-old words that speak, um, you know, speak emotions that you're feeling. Uh, but then at the same time, like I said, in my experience, when you have those moments of transcendence, they are they are a surprise, and they come uh, not necessarily at the expected at the expected times. And then all you can do is just say thank you. Yes, you know. Yes, because well, I mean, it is remarkable those moments when it's like you know I know all my rules are like get enough sleep, don't be on my phone late at night, don't drink, don't have caffeine after lunch. I mean those are like my basic like if I want to feel like human again rules. Um, and That's I a can, lot of rules. Good for you. Wow. Well, <laughs> um, wow. And I can do those rules and still feel like shit. And then I can feel like shit, and suddenly God's grace intervenes in this radical, unexpected way that like knocks me off of my feet. You know what I mean? Yes. And so I, yes. I totally agree. Well, let's 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 actually then shift into that because that we've came across this remarkable conversation between essayist and writer Leslie Jameson, who spoke at our conference uh, this past year in New York, and uh, the poet uh, um, Kave Akbar. They were talking in the um, Paris Review, and uh, under the heading "Rigorous Grace." And Kava uh, Akbar, uh, sort of one of the things he says, he says, there's a moment in one of the early essays in Leslie's new collection, he says, where, where Leslie, where you crystallize it, writing, the definition of grace is that it's not deserved. I have been grappling with this idea in my own life, the notion that if I'm capable of doling out grace only to those obviously deserving of it, it isn't grace exactly. It's kindness or it's pity or it's maybe just propriety. What is grace to you and what can it do? And then Leslie launches into this unbelievable um, answer. She says, and I'm going to just quote parts of it. Part of what grace means to me is you feel the world get larger around you and feel yourself get smaller within it. And the world can get large around you in so many ways. Uh, The vending machine of grace is vast, and it never gives you exactly what you asked for. As you, Kava, wrote, I live in the gulf between what I've been given and what I've received. And Leslie continues, says, it makes me think of a beautiful sentiment I once heard from a stranger. Uh, And I'm pretty sure she means a stranger in AA. Um, Sometimes the solution has nothing to do with the problem. I think surprise is an important part of grace. You thought you wanted cookies, but you really needed seltzer. Grace isn't the thing you planned. It's what you get instead, which is maybe connected to the ways you and I want to uncouple it from a sense of contingency or deserving it. Grace is not a product of narrative or moral cause and effect. It catches you off guard. She continues by saying, My obsession with surprise as a crucial part of grace is connected, I think, with my obsession with thwarted narratives. I'm both boggled and inspired by the ways the plot lines we write for ourselves are always getting overturned. Surprise is sometimes my working definition of God or grace. I've been thinking a lot about this thing uh, that the, connection, the comedian Kyle Kinane, Kinane um, says in one of his stand-up routines, that a miracle is just the world letting you know it can still surprise you. The first time I heard that, I was driving across the Arizona desert in the middle of this pretty surreal, wonderful, uncategorizable uh, fever dream with another person, and I thought, Amen. Being surprised means staying humble. It means being perpetually reminded of everything you don't know, everything you didn't understand. I love these as sort of a person always looking for fresh language for what we talk about. Mm. Um, surprise as being, um, it, and it is, surprise is never, grace is never what you expect. It's mm. always, it's interruptive. It's, uh, you know, it, it is, it catches you off guard. Uh, my older brother, John Zoll, is always talking about grace and surpri- there's always an element of surprise to grace. Um, it's like almost like a surprise party. Uh, but, it sounds like that, or already sounds like that resonated with you guys. What, what else are you thinking here in Leslie's words? It reminded me of this weird Devil Wears Prada. You guys remember that mm-hmm. movie with Anne Hathaway mm-hmm. and Meryl Streep? Where um, if you haven't seen it, you know, Anne Hathaway is this very earnest young college graduate who wants to do serious journalism. Um, and she can only get a job as an intern at this really, you know, high-flying fashion magazine in New York or whatever. And she fights it and she hates it and terrible relationship with her boss. And then suddenly something happens and she starts to really love it and love her boss and enjoy the work she's doing and find meaning in it. 
Um, but then at the end, she decides to sort of leave it all behind and go back to her original dream. And I bring that up because I always felt that that rung really false mm-hmm. to me. That when you, you know, I, I sometimes feel strange or guilty for not having like um, a, a dream job. You know, or like, like, oh gosh, I, I just hope that someday I end up here. Or this is, this is what I really want to do. This is what I'm aiming for. This is my plan. But I think the reason I don't have that is because I, I have no, I have very little confidence that I actually know what will make me happy. Because in my experience, oftentimes what I think will make me happy doesn't. And then it's the surprising thing that actually does make me happy. And another corollary to that would be, and this is, I hope this doesn't sound too judgy, but I always... It makes me sad when I f- hear about, you know, young-ish people, people are in their early 20s or something who fall in love and they would have gotten married, but it just, so it just wasn't the time and right time in their career. And I'm like, you have no idea what you're giving up. Mm. Like you, you, you have no idea what a miracle it is to fall in love in the first place. And why would you risk that for something as small as a career or economics or something? And so I think that is, I, th- I think... You look for the surprise, and if by God's grace you you find something that a spot where you're happy, satisfied, or whatever it might be, you just give thanks for it, and you you don't sort of um, still try to work towards something else or what you thought your dream was. Or I think most people do that. I think right, they people start out having a, in their career having a vague idea of what they want to do, and they find themselves doing something maybe related, maybe something totally different, but they stick with the surprise. Um, and I think that's also true for love, you know, that falling, falling in love, um, falling into the right career, um, falling into friendships, whatever it might be, it's always a surprise, but that the best things in life are always gifts and not something that we planned for or earned or strategized to get. Um, mm. So I, yeah, I, love, I love that idea. A thwarted narrative. A th- that's right. A thwart- How many times has my narrative been thwarted? By the grace many, of God. Many times. By the grace of God. That's right. Come to find out, he might actually know better than than I do. It reminds me of children. I mean, honestly, because I'm, you know, I work full time and um, I'm always sort of over identifying with my work. Um, see, also the last thing we talked about, and kids are always such a source for me. Sometimes I wonder what my source will be because my kids right now are little and they say things, and you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you said that to me, like. Like last night, Annie told me she, my kindergartner, that she wants to be in the school talent show, and I was like, "That oh great!" And what do you want to sing? And she's like, "Twinkle, twinkle, little star," because I know all the words. I was like, "Amazing!" And then I was like, "What makes you want to be in the talent show?" And she said, "Because last year, when she was a preschooler, they took them to see the school talent show, and she said, and every time people got up to sing, I cried happy tears because it was so beautiful." And I was like. I can't believe I get to ra- to raise you. Like we don't deserve mm. you. You know, it was just like such a powerful. You didn't I mean, expect her to say that. My son a few weeks ago was having to do this project. You know, the kids get these little um, they get little newsletters kind of things. Scholastic does them, and they have to write quick question and answers about them. And the whole article, um, and I think they, I'm sure they had it in there because kids would think it was funny. They have not met Neil Condon. And it was a whole little article about the world's ugliest dog. And he was like, Mama, this is the saddest thing I've ever seen. I can't believe that they decide that a dog is ugly. And the thing about this dog is it's really cute. Look at the picture. And I was like, I can't. I mean, it's again, it's like, I can't believe that you're an everyday part of my life that I get to encounter. Um and they hit me that way over and I don't know. I think children for me are like such, that's just like, it's the season I'm in. I mean, I have a really good friend who is such a funny, beautiful, scary, horrible, hard story about having three kids going to the doctor to get her tubes tied last spring. And the doctor was like, yeah, we're happy to do this. But just to be clear, you're going to need to have this baby that's in there first. <laughs> and she was like, do, do what? Do, do what? Surprise. You know? And she's like, I have an appointment tomorrow oh. to get my tubes tied. And oh I like gosh. hung out with her a lot when she was pregnant. And she was just like, this sucks so bad. I cannot believe we're having a fourth kid. Like, this is a horrible thing. And I'm not excited about it. And then this fourth baby has come. And she's like, 
I had no idea how much we needed this beauty in our lives. You know Mm. what I mean? Like, I had no idea how much this baby would make our family slow down in such a significant way that was so necessary. Um, So anyway, I just, I don't know. I think for me, like, I read this and I think about, and I'm not everybody has kids, but I read this and I think about, like, kids, you know? So... So, you know, that's so beautiful because kids do, they say the darndest things. And it, what, by what we mean by that is usually they surprise you with what yes. they say. Yeah. And they catch you off guard. Yeah. And you kind of get stopped out of whatever program you have for their lives in that moment. And you have to kind of get yanked into the present and actually dealing with them. And it's usually a huge gift. Sometimes not so much. Sometimes it's <laughs> but, not. Um, sometimes I like, who wants to be, watch TV? Yeah. <laughs> and let's be frank, sometimes the surprise can be hard, yeah. but it doesn't mean it's not good. You know, yeah. it, may, it may take a little while to kind of figure that out. But and again, you, we, we, we do believe in a God who works in the midst of all things. Um, and usually yeah. when I hear people say, I don't like surprises. Now, they might have had some traumatic thing in their past, but usually what that to me is um, they really like control. And yeah. um, I mean, who would join the club? We all love control, but um, that always makes me. That, there's like nothing that makes me more sad than when someone says, "I hate surprises," because mm. I want to say, "Well, um, yeah, that's you're cutting yourself off from a whole lot of things." And yet, I sort of hate you're surprises not be very too. Happy in this life, <laughs> think. I mean, this week, this week, I couldn't help but think about it. Um, we saw like two pretty, I th- one incredibly powerful instance of grace when we saw the brother. Oh, yeah. uh, Brant Jean uh, Jean of uh, this murdered young man uh, get down off the stand and go hug the police officer who had accidentally shot his brother and he forgives her and he invites her to know Jesus and he then kind of gives her this hug and then you have the actual after the proceedings are done then you have the the judge uh, an older black woman comes down and also she addresses the family and she speaks with them and then she goes and gives uh, actually the the vic- the um the murderer uh, Amber mm-hmm. asks for a hug she gives her a hug and then she says I don't have a, could God really forgive me she says I think I th-. the judge says Tammy Kemp says yes I, I do believe so and she says but I don't have a Bible and so she goes and gets her the Bible all of this is completely surprising and it went viral and everyone it gets politicized and it becomes a and um you know it comes about groups rather than people and i we need I to get, get excited about it wait now we have to feel guilty about it i yeah I, I get that there are issues however what is what was what is totally true is that it was a thwarted narrative that we don't see very often and everyone basically on a gut emotional level freaked out the same thing happens when ellen degeneres is is, is uh photographed uh, hanging out at the dallas uh Cowboys game with George W. Bush and everyone freaks out and she has to, because it's such a surprise that these two uh, you know people who are sort of one is sort of so emblematic of uh, blue state and one is so emblematic of red state would be hanging out and yet it's another surprise and she uses the opportunity to sort of t- talk about how she uh, believes in kindness and she actually he's her friend and all these things and uh, people in both cases uh, hate the great they're, they're all in favor of, of either revenge or simply justice, and those are those are to be expected. But the, what's surprising is when you see uh, grace a, at work, and I found to myself surprised in both cases. That's not to con- not to reduce everything down to these theological terms. However, on a gut emotional level, I found myself crying or being excited because I want to be surprised myself in that same way that when I am in the dock, uh, that, that there's an, a deep emotional connection. If you've ever really screwed up, that um, you, you, our hope is the surprise of grace, you know? So I actually loved what RJ said about how sometimes grace comes as like an unwelcome surprise that is hard initially. So uh, something I have not talked about before and have not written about before is that um, I started losing my hair when I was 26 years old. And which let me tell you for a woman is like, there's all kinds of statistics where like twice as likely to be on antidepressants. I mean, it's a, it's a horrible, horrible thing to go through as a woman because all your femininity is bound up in it. And thanks to Mockingbird, I'm on camera like seasonally now in front of people terrified that you're going to see how thin my hair is. <laughs> so, um, 
But this past week, you know, I've managed it. There's all kinds of stuff you can go on, but I've managed it and it's fine. And I've got, you know, a short sheet haircut. So here we are. But this past week, um, I'd had a, I'd had a thing removed from my head by the dermatologist and I was getting my hair cut and my hairdresser was like, Sarah, what happened to the back of your head? I was like, oh, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And that night I was putting Annie to bed, my daughter, and I reached my head up and I was like, wow, it feels real fleshy back there. And I got my husband, you know, till death do us part <laughs> to pull out a cell phone and take a picture of a bald patch on the back of my head that is about the size of a quarter, friends. Mm. This was on Saturday night. I started having to breathe into a brown paper bag because the next morning I'm preaching to hundreds of people, right? And I'm going through all sort of the things I've dealt with for the past 10 years, dealing with something as bad as hair loss as a very young woman. And I started to laugh. And I couldn't stop because I don't know why God has chosen to do this to me. I have no idea. I know it has created more empathy in me for people who struggle with things about their physicality than I would have ever had. Um, I know it has, like, humbled me in ways that I wouldn't have been otherwise humbled. And I know it has been this, like, odd gift And honestly, I think for any woman that had not gone through what I've gone through the past few years, to lose a whole batch of air the night before you have to get up in front of people would be, I mean, you just crawl back in bed and be like, we're canceling tomorrow. And for me, I was like, well, of course, like, this is what's happening. I've been through this before. It was like an odd miracle of grace in that moment. It made me more vulnerable as a preacher. It made me more free in the gospel. It made me more able to realize that it really didn't matter what I look like, you know, and then I was just going to get up in front of people and preach. Mm. I mean, I think for me, it was this odd, very personal moment of grace. I mean, Dave, I have to tell you, I've almost written about this because um, I was really grappling. I mean, the thing with hair loss is it can get really bad and then it can get better. It can get really bad and it can get better. And you write a piece right when, I think right when I was starting to write for Mockingbird called Your Soul Toupee is Showing. <laughs> and I was like, but what if I have a real toupee? <laughs> like, it like that I'm hiding from everyone because this is like the worst, you know. So um, anyway, I that was like. A bad a, surprise, but a also. Very, a bad surprise, but also like one where like I learned so much about. I don't know how much God loves me, what, where my value lies, like all those, all those really hard lessons to learn. So, yeah, and for those, I don't know, for those people for whom that's a strange message, it just it, I'm gonna, I'll quote a little scripture here because it reminds me of like one of my favorite passages, um, Romans eight. You know, uh, for the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but of the will of the one who created it, in the hopes that it would be liberated from its bondage to decay and enter into the glorious freedom of the children of light. Mm. You know, that you're you're losing your hair because God wants you to be free. Right. That sounds really insane to say. It does, but, but like... But it's kind of true. so much comfort there. Like... Yeah, it's not your fault. No. You know, it's not, it's it's part, it's the whole sequence. And those multivitamins are not going to help, sis. Not, you know what I mean? Not why me, but why, why not me? And guess what? God's right. going to work through that too. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I think it, it it's a strange lead-in, I guess, to this, um, or maybe it's perfectly suiting uh, to, to this final remarkable essay that we came across in the Christian Century um, oh. that uh, by Heidi Haverkamp, and she's a, an Episcopal uh, minister, and uh, she wrote this article called How I Learned to Love Total Depravity, which if you read Christian Century, it's not the sort of thing you're expecting to find there. Um, and uh, she recounts, uh, you know, her the, the, her family's history, and uh, her I think is her grandfather's um, or great grandfather uh, was a um, Presbyterian minister, a very capital R reformed and extremely, um, you know, very much convinced of uh, this doctrine of total depravity, which is, you know, a, a doctrine which uh, you know I guess triggers people. You could say, <laughs> not um, terribly popular in the present moment. No, and it's um, you know I think it's widely misunderstood, and yet still the total part is. Um, I would just drop that uh, that that word, but this is what she says, and let me speak. Let her speak for herself because it's uh, remarkable in its uh, you know. Uh, 
precision and also its humor and uh, personality. She says, in the university neighborhood where I grew up, it was a well-established orthodoxy that people are basically good and the best sort of life is lived trying to make the world a better place. Um, uh, the question was never, you know, why did God allow bad things to happen, but why do human beings allow them to happen? Uh, then she writes, as an adult and a Christian... I want to do the right thing. I keep mental lists of how I want to live more responsibly, eat less meat, buy less plastic, reduce my carbon footprint, speak up about racism, give to charities. But it never seems like enough. Not sleep. (laughs) Social media, yeah. Um, Social media is always ready to help me count the ways I could do more, leaving me feeling more guilty than righteous, unable to keep up. As Paul writes, I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. And that's Romans 7. At least not consistently or very effectively. We're back to uh, Heidi Haverkamp. Uh, No matter what I do or how hard I try to be righteous, the world spins me to my knees at every turn with more evidence of cruelty, catastrophe, and waste. I do not feel theologically equipped to handle the enormous weight of evil I see in the world. After all, I was raised to believe that human beings are capable of stopping it. And then she talks about total depravity and what what this doctrine... um, She says, total depravity frames humans not as good people who sometimes mess up, but as messed up people who, with God's help, can do some good things, but nothing completely free of selfishness or error. We are unable to make a choice that is unquestionably entirely good. None of our actions, loves, or thoughts can be truly without sin. But she says something remarkable. She says, I find a surprising grace in the bleak, unflinching outlook of my Calvinist heritage. Yes, Heidi, start listening to it. I love it. <laughs> Total depravity matches the sin-sized hole in my belly in a way that, quote, all people are basically good, end of quote, never could. Total depravity speaks to sin in our personal lives. More importantly for me, it also gives theological definition to corporate and societal sins. It's not just that I am unable to love everyone I meet or to live a life that is plastics-free. I have also found it impossible to untangle my individual life from systems of injustice. A contemporary Episcopal prayer of confession includes the line, We repent of the evil we have done and the evil done on our behalf. There is a lot of suffering and a lot of evil in this world, and I find I cannot consider myself entirely innocent of it. And then she, she, she closes with this, or actually she closes this section. She says, when unreasonable, unremitting human sin is something I expect, then I can face the headwinds of evil without despair. When I believe that human life, including my own, will never be without sin and suffering, I have a greater ability to tolerate pain and horror and to keep on doing justice, loving kindness, and walking humbly. I can, as Anne Lamott would say, keep singing hallelujah and looking for grace anyway. I mean, I'm, I'm, so good. I'm very touched uh, by what she says. You know, the the um, original sin, I mean, I would just call it original sin rather than total depravity. Uh, but the idea that nothing we do is ever totally pure uh, or purely good, it is a it is an unpopular idea. But it what it births, what she says is, is tolerance and it births also compassion. Um, and not only for other people, but for oneself. It is... Um, to say nothing of it reduces the cognitive dissonance that you have to, if you have a, what we call an f- inflated anthropology or this idea that people are basically good, then you're constantly having to explain away all of the evidence that streams across your uh, radar uh, just every second, including your own internal monologue. Um, that's a lot of dissonance to have to reconcile within yourself. I mean, you and, just have to ignore poor people, right? I mean, there's like all sorts of things. I mean, mm-hmm. just to name it. It's such a... And, and rich people, to be honest rich with people, you. You have to ignore... <laughs> yeah, everybody. I, mean, I just, when I read this, I mean, I really identified with the way she kind of talked about the theology of her childhood. Um, cause I do think that that's a very, I mean, that's, that really runs steadily through mainland Protestantism and has now for several decades where it's just like, you know, we're going to build the kingdom. We're going to be kingdom makers. I mean, you know. kind, kingdom makers. This is the generation. <laughs> this Sorry. is the generation. Right? We're going to solve world right hunger. All wrongs. Millennium yes. development goals. I mean, it's just like a bunch of things we could say that have not worked out at all. Um, not yet, Sarah, but come on. Oh my You're just word. being too pessimistic. I know. It's just like, it's. 
she's able to because she comes from that from an inflated anthropology yes. she can sort of discover the beauty of a low one but if you come from a, a one where total depravity has basically um, been used as a vehicle of self-loathing mm-hmm. then you want to run in the opposite direction and you want to embrace a high anthropology which again in, has embedded within it the cruelties that we have um, that we've uh, have been talking about and that she actually because you, know, you will come to hate people if you b- expect them to be better than they actually are capable of being they just oh yeah I mean when I think about how many people I know who just got ordained with me who are not an ordained ministry anymore I mean seriously like you when you are handed the stuff that we hear in a lot of mainline Protestant circles about making people better, um, and I just you know the thing I always say is like y'all if that if this had if this was the trajectory, we would all be better by now. We've been trying to make people better now for a while, you know, and people just seem to keep getting worse. Um, it's I mean it is that whole idea of of why I think a low anthropology is like necessary and you know one thing I've noticed is people will people are starting in some circles I see and praise God for this to talk this way and to talk about low anthropology but here is the problem you have to talk about it for yourself before you talk about it for anybody else and Heidi really does a beautiful job of that in this piece I think that is for me that is the most important thing and I you know I I mean, this is the stuff. This this piece I related to. Um, she had a she had a you know great grandfather who was the person that she could kind of lean on and find an identity in in terms of thinking about uh, total depravity or you know original sin or low anthropology, whatever you call it. I had Mockingbird. I mean, that really is like that Mockingbird saved my life and my ministry. I would I would not be in ministry right now if I had not heard that I was going to be fully armed with, you know, all of this knowledge about how to plant urban community gardens and also how to, you know, protest climate change or whatever, you know, I was, I mean, that was, I was going to go out and I was going to do these things. And like, just at the end of seminary, somebody told me about Mockingbird. And I was like, I was like, wait, what? Wait, I'm going to go out there and everybody's going to be fallen and I'm fallen and they're going to need redemption and they're going to need to hear about the gospel. And oh, wait, I mean, Jacob Smith, just this week, my husband and I were talking about this, just this week on Same Old Song, preached to me because he said, you know, so often in mainline Protestantism or just in the church in general, we hear uh, people say, you know, what is the gospel? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. And he's like, that's the law. I mean, that's the law. That's the great commandment. But we, we have so twisted it, you know, that we give people this impossible charge. And here's the thing, it will burn people out. I mean, that is the thing. If your heart's mechanism is that you have to be in this place of, I've got to get it together. I've got to love people. I've got to love God. You will fail. You will drop out of ministry. You will be able to plant tomatoes. So that is good news. You know what I mean? You You'll can drop make out your own the- salt. You'll drop out of the pews, too. I mean, yes. I mean, it's just gonna it kills you. But if your starting point is like, I need Jesus, you know, I I can't get out of bed in the morning without him. And also, like, I'm gonna fail at everything before I even like walk outside. Then there's then like the the grace and mercy of that. I mean, you just I don't know, it's just different. Mm. I feel like this is a repeat of last week. Sorry, I don't mean to sermonize to y'all, but I just uh, this piece really was so. I feel like she and I just are like. I feel like besties. We're, I feel like we're we're kin, but not building the kingdom. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Dave, you sort of just put something together for me that I hadn't thought about before, which is there probably are a lot of people out there, especially people who were raised Christian who are trying to remain Christian, who were raised in environments where total depravity was a thing. Yeah. But that doctrine was used as an excuse and justification for control. Yes. Rather than um, living in the light, humility, repentance, mercy, forgiveness, restoration, grace, that sort of thing. Um, but of course, that's also true on the other side of the coin, right? That if you if you have a if you think highly of people 
and you're using it as a uh, a way to or justification to try to control them, that's not going to work out well. Mm-hmm. Or if you think you know lowly of people and try to control them, also not going to work out well. And there is something in even even if you think part of that lowliness is their propensity to try to control other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and there is something in Christianity or Christian ministry, I think, where you you sort of do want to. Um, treat people as better than they are, right? You want to impute unto them some kind of loveliness or that there's something, you know, when someone expects the best of you in a loving, gracious way, it actually does bring out the best in you, you know? Um, And so, I don't know, those are interesting things to kind of balance out, right? To to sort of know in your heart of hearts at the end of the day, hopefully not to be surprised when someone falls into some sin. You know, the group of clergy and I have sort of a running joke that when something happens in one of our churches, it's like, well, just when you thought your anthropology was low enough, you know, so-and-so went and did this. So you want to know that about people enough to love them, but you also want to um, sort of treat them as as being lovely because that bring you know that that um sort of ennobles them or when you're again when you're loved you tend to act in a more lovely way so i don't know the balance is there but there's something definitely about control and as a as a person in the world as a parent as a spouse as a friend as a pastor you know if you are looking to control other people in any way, which of course we all are, you're probably on the wrong track. And and again, I think I've said this before, it reminds me, I think um, Tom Becker said this once. He said, you know, that in AA, um, any need to control another person is taken as a sign of a, a lack of faith. Because if you actually believed in God, if you actually believed in a higher power to whom you could turn things over and was actually in control, you would not feel the need to um, sort of tell other people what to do. Mm. You could you could entrust them to God in the way that they'd entrust themselves to God. So um, that's not a quite fully no. I, I think in, in in grace and practice, my dad has a thing about a good ministers like Mister Magoo. They sort of yes. um, you know they're kind of blind to they, they completely know what people are like, but they they, they kind of are blind to this, the the sin and they. Um, they 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 only they try to treat the person they impute constantly in a way yes. that is in a way that doesn't necessarily ring false if it's rooted in your belief in Christ. Um, it's not it's not a different kind of manipulation because that's sometimes how it gets uh, understood. What's well, right, like you impute? Yeah, it's like you impute to someone you're in love with. Yes, you know same same sort of thing. Or or you know Dave um, Dave preached a, a wonderful wedding homily this past weekend where he talked about the key to marriage is. Uh, treating your spouse as if they're a little child, which sounds strange, but what he, not that you try to control them, but but when they screw up, you don't say, oh, you should have known better. You know, like get your act together. Although, of course, some parents say that to their children, but, but hopefully not to a little child. You know, you kind of you kind of laugh a little bit and love them and comfort yeah. them and move on. There's a generosity, um, which is your baseline, yes. even though you fully see what they actually just did. And you, right. you, you, yes. you're usually the one to have to deal with the consequences. Yes. Yeah. But you, you think, oh my gosh, they must have, a, they have not gotten enough sleep last night. Um, it's, uh, it's but that being said, I, I understand the allergy to total depravity if it was used as a weapon against you. But when I think about that doctrine, the way it shows up in the New Testament and in the lives of ministers of the gospel, it's not used as a weapon. It's used as, um, I don't know, a, a way in. Uh, an act of mercy, a way to love, a way to accept in spite of people's disastrous realities. I also think it's important to say about imputation because I see this done sometimes. Um, imputation is not meant to make people better. It's meant to tell people. That's control too. It's meant to tell people <laughs> yeah. that they're whole. That yeah. is, you know, yeah. you know, I mean, that it's, it's, um, because I think I, the fascinating thing to me about all, sort of all of these like major theological concepts is that they can be misused um by the right or the left in the church. And um, I just think there's danger on either end. So that's why the gospel is so uncomfortable, y'all. Yeah, and ultimately we're... I mean, I don't know what to say, except for I'm. my hope lies in the judge getting off the bench and coming yes. down to give me a hug. Holy right. goodness. You want to talk about a well biblical vision? That I am yeah. guilty as charged, and in fact, probably more guilty than I or anyone in that courtroom know. That that is, um, because that's what, we, we, usually when we talk about grace and we talk about forgiveness, people, uh, they only hear it in terms of the law. Like, you must now do this to every murderer 
or every time there's been a shooting or every time such and such. The, what, where we as, as Christians, we think of ourselves as the person who's the perpetrator. What does it say to the guilty party? How, does, how do we hear it um, if we actually believe what Heidi Haverkamp says about us, that not only are we involved in um, you know, systems of, uh, of sin, um, but that we're complicit in them, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we're un- we cannot untangle ourselves from them, that we need mm-hmm. deliverance, we need pardon, we need redemption, we need all of the things that we cannot really generate, the pure motives that we cannot seem to, uh, you know, manufacture. I mean, I have to say, like, when I, um, when I saw the story about um, Brant Jean uh, forgiving um, the woman, I can't remember her name right off the top of my head, but forgiving the, the woman who murdered his Amber brother. Geiger. Yeah. Amber Geiger. Forgiving Amber Geiger. I was like, wow, this is like, this feels like the prodigal son. I mean, this feels like that welcome, you know, like that welcome home embrace. And I think the thing about that that story that is very important is that everyone was focused on like, I can't believe he forgive her. And I'm like, let's talk about the radical idea that he, and Dave, you pointed this out, but invited her to a life in Christ. I mean, that really is important. But when I think about the judge, and that's so, the judge thing is, image is so biblical, right? Um, I'm like, I'm sitting here, I'm like, what does that remind me of? And it's the conversion of St. Paul. Mm-hmm. Because it's this like murderous person, right? Who is and and she we know from Amber Geiger's social media she's super racist, right? There were these people that she hated because they were not of her quote unquote tribe. She was persecuting, persecuting, and and mm. and God comes to Paul and is like, "You belong to me now. Like you are forgiven and loved, and you belong to me now." You know, and the difference between us and the and and the the people in the story of Paul, the difference between you know uh, the us now and the disciples is that this the thing with that story that is bananas surprising. <laughs> is that everybody surprising? Is that everybody around? So all the all the disciples, all the these early Christians, are, they're like initially hesitant, and then they're like, "Well, he's one of ours now." Like pretty quickly, you know what mm. I mean? It's so beautiful. And now it's like you know we can't. We just want to cast. We continue to want. I feel like not only do we want to cast Amber Geiger into outer darkness, but you know what? If we could throw that brother and that judge back there, that'd be good too. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's seriously, that's what it feels like. Like, by the way, you're not allowed to forgive anybody, and we're going to ban you for that. I couldn't believe that this, that, I guess I could totally believe, but I was so grateful that we could uh, just be exposed to this and just sit in it. Let's just sit in it. Anyway, any final thoughts before we sign off? RJ, nothing? Go Astros. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm grateful for you two, uh, for both of you. And uh, we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group, and if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.